question the important issues of today and try to find a sort of spiritual connection? Welcome to Religious Faith and the Public Square with Father John Holloman as your host. Religion deals with the most fundamental issues humans face. There are arguments for and against the existence of God, where religion belongs in everyday life and a number of questions left unanswered. This is where it all gets discovered. Now, here is Father John Holloman. Hello again. Glad to be back Be back with you. Last week, we were just coming up to um, finish off Mark's Gospel, and today we'll go on to get into Matthew's Gospel. Um, it was a series of events which profoundly affected the early church. The death of the leading apostles, Peter and Paul in Rome, and James in Jerusalem, the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple by Roman legions in the year A.D. 70. Um, which was resulted in the flight of Christians from the city of Jerusalem, which was the beginning of really spreading things out. Whether Mark wrote just before or after these events is uncertain, but he had to explain them so as to affirm the power of God to fulfill his promise and judge those who rejected Jesus. His interpretation was that the destruction of Jerusalem was a divine judgment on Judaism for its blindness. <clears throat> now, the sure sign of the end of the age for Mark will be desecration of the temple, but in the interim, the task of universal evangelism uh, is important. The end will occur within the lifetime of the first generation, um, which can be found in verse 30 of chapter 13. But uh, the expecting the imminence of the second coming was not just uh, confined to Mark. Uh, St. Paul himself um, talks about it, that um, it's going to be soon. And as his letters go on, he begins to realize it's not going to be that simple. But uh, it explains why he didn't object to things like slavery. Um, there was no time to uh, tackle an institution of the state as Rome practiced it. Um, it wasn't that he approved of it, it was that he simply, it was, the time was too short to deal with it. Um, <clears throat> the true sign of the end of the age would be the desecration of the temple but it should occur within the lifetime of the first generation. So the community must be ever faithful and watchful. The Last Supper was recalled in the church's tradition for two reasons. First of all, it is an, the, the analogy between the Jewish Passover and the death of Jesus, um, the deliverance of the people from bondage. And secondly, the concept of Jesus' death as a sacrifice that sealed the New Testament, the New Covenant, promised by Jeremiah. Now, in the trial and death of Jesus, Mark depicts the instability of the disciples, even as Jesus struggles to carry out his God-assigned destiny. The issues raised in front of the high priest are all religious. First, the threat to the temple, and second, his claim to be son of God. 
In chapter 14, verse 62, Jesus for the first time states unequivocally that he is the Son of God. He goes on to define what he means. The central point in Mark's understanding Jesus as a Messiah is that he combines the kingly role of the David with the role of representative of the saints of the Most High in Daniel. Jesus could legally have been stoned to death according to Roman law, and there was no need to involve the Roman government. But here the Sanhedrin does nothing except hand him over to Pilate to be condemned as a political, on the political charge of claiming to be king of the Jews. Now the oldest and best manuscripts of Mark end at chapter 16, verse 8, with the empty tomb. Um, Mark was not interested in coercing faith in his leaders, and his readers, but eliciting faith from them as a response. Um, why are the concluding verses that are there now could be considered part of the gospel? Uh, because the church over the centuries has accepted them. Now, moving on to the gospel of Matthew. Biblical scholars uh, estimate, as this is an educated guess, that it was written around A.D. 80 to 85, possibly in Antioch. Written for Greek-speaking people, strongly influenced by Jewish perspectives and aspirations. There's a paradoxical attitude towards Judaism in Matthew. He's deeply sympathetic, but at times profoundly critical of it. Matthew cannot understand how the Jews could fail to discern the truth to be found in Jesus. Not primarily polemical, but it's a book of instruction for those living in tension with the Jews, and it employs typically Jewish methods of debate. Matthew seems devoted to the maintaining of the order in the church. Matthew had a fondness for structure, especially in the main body of the gospel which is divided into five sections, each section concluding with some such phrase as when Jesus had finished these saying. Each section begins with narratives about the activities. He concludes with extended discourse. So chapters 3 to 7, 8 to 10, 11 to 13, 14 to 18, 19 and 25 would be examples. Matthew's claim from beginning to end is that Jesus is God's fulfillment of the scriptures. Matthew stresses the miraculous element more than the other evangelists. Um, compare Matthew's version of Jesus' death in the empty tomb with that of Mark. He introduced scripture quote formula which runs with variations. This was done to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, give pick a name. Um, Eleven times, one quote cannot be found in the Hebrew Bible, which is chapter 2, verse 23, which is a reference to Judges or Isaiah. Um, <clears throat> If you remember, I talked about the Septuagint Bible. 
which was a translation of the Hebrew Bible into Greek, undertaken in Alexandria, Egypt, around 90 B.C., because there were so many Jews in Egypt who did not read or understand Hebrew. So there's some, found, about some differences to be found between the Hebrew version and the Greek version. Now, in his version of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, Matthew shows an ignorance of Hebrew poetic form, probably that of parallelism where the meaning of the first line is echoed or amplified in the second line. He makes an explicit allusion to Zechariah 9, but thinks this means that there are two different animals. Other evangelists didn't make this mistake. The Beatitudes, which opened the Sermon on the Mountain, show that ethics is not a matter of mere conformity to a legal code. And on that point, he agrees with Mark. God's people are those who recognize that all they have is a gift from God. They may be poor and despised in this world, but not in the age to come. Israel has failed to expect the law to be fulfilled in a proper and complete way. Jesus expresses a full, radical affirmation of the law. No reducing of the law to a single principle such as love. Now, the role of the Christian is teaching and doing. A true child of the kingdom teaches rightly and lives rightly. There's a problem with the Pharisees is that they do not live up to what they teach. Uh, Jesus' demand is more profound than what is explicitly permitted or prohibited. He goes to the root of human relationships, not just the externals of those relationships. Also, obedience to the law in Matthew is not confined to ethical performance, but includes such typical Jewish acts of piety as prayer, almsgiving, and fasting. Now, there's no modern distinction here between ceremonial law as not binding on Christians and moral law as being valid. Righteousness is a characteristic term in Matthew, but not just obedience to rules, but a way of life outlined by Jesus' interpretation of the will of God, which must be total compliance. Partial isn't good enough. Now, Matthew gives concrete examples in the parable of the last judgment. But this same parable tells us that righteousness is not just a matter of individual behavior. It also involves fulfillment of God's purpose in the kingdom at the end of time. Hence, there is a corporate dimension as well uh, in ethical life, and the whole community is responsible for the welfare of the little ones. Works of kindness are not to be done for reward, but solely on the basis of human need. Now, the mixed nature of Christian community is pictured in Matthew's versions of parables of the kingdom. Um, he distinguishes between kingdom of the Son of Man, the church's present age with a mixture of good and bad people, um, the parable of the weeds in which um, the, the wheat is sown, but also uh, weeds get in with, mixed in with it. And so you have to um, sort them out at harvest time. The, the parable of the weeds makes two different points. 
Um, it's time for a break, so I'll continue that when we come back. Do you ever question the important issues of today and try to find a sort of... It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com As a Catholic or non-Catholic, would you be interested in knowing more about the faith? We have a large selection of books in various categories from apologetics to spirituality. CDs and DVDs are also available, as well as handcrafted rosaries. In short, we are a resource for seekers. If we do not have what you are looking for, give us a call and we will try to find it for you. Visit DefendingTheCatholicFaith.com to find out more or call us at 251-317-3977. That's DefendingTheCatholicFaith.com. Are you satisfied with your life? Do you know that more should be possible? Listen for the Access Consciousness Radio Show with the creators of Access, Gary Douglas and Dr. Dane here. Our program offers pragmatic tools to change things in your life that you haven't been able to change until now. What if all of life could come to you with ease, joy, and glory? Tune in to Access Consciousness Thursdays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Empowerment. Who are you, really? Are you the person you want to be, or are you the person that others want you to be? Think about that. We don't always recognize our gifts and potential because we stick to old methods of being and do what others in our lives tell us. It's time to break through. Listen for Rediscovering the Magic of Being with Marja. Each program connects you back to whom you were meant to be every Tuesday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time and 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Tune in. Build your better business. Achieve that goal. Make good on that resolution. The Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. tuned into Religious Faith and the Public Square with Father John Holloman. To reach the program today, please call 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. You may also send an email to defendingcatholicfaith at gmail.com. Now, back to Religious Faith and the Public Square. Getting back to Matthew's Gospel, the parable of the weeds, which is found only in Matthew, makes two different points. First, the messenger of the Gospel should go about his work without stopping to evaluate the outcome or trying to remedy unwanted results. Our task is to sow, leaving the results to God. He will be the one to evaluate on the Day of Judgment. Secondly, it is a warning to members of the church that some of them are worthy and some are not. The latter belong to the kingdom of the Son of Man, while the former to the kingdom of the Father. The parable of the net is likewise a warning that Christians should not be bad faith whose destiny is to be thrown into the furnace. Finally, there is the parable of the feast in chapter 22 which also makes the point that the people of God are a mixed group. Those who finally come to the feast are both good and bad. One man who lacks the appropriate garb is cast into outer darkness. 
the garment, wedding garment, is mentioned there, is a euphemism for the consciousness. However, the church cannot wait until Judgment Day to settle matters of good and evil within its own group. There must be some system of adjudicating disputes and some structure of authority. Matthew alone among the Gospels makes provision for this need. In the story of Peter's confession in chapter 16, verses 17 to 19, Peter's central role is viewed not as administrator, but as the exercise of authority in requiring the inner life of regulating the inner life of the community. Um, which leads to mission um, of the magisterium. Um, one of the functions the rabbis referred to in Jewish tradition as binding and loosing was to formulate interpretations of the legal parts of the Old Testament in order to determine the situations in which a given law was or was not applicable in the new order of things. The leadership role in the church, therefore, includes the task of interpreting the law, whether old or new, in relation to the early, early needs, daily needs of the church's life. Uh, magisterium comes from the Latin word magister, which means teacher, and it refers to the teaching office of the church. Now, this is not a, some committee of theologians in Rome who sit down and decide what's what. Magisterium consists of all the bishops of the church. First of all, those who are living and uh, belong to the church militant and those who have passed on to their reward in the church triumphant. And how do you include those who aren't living today? That's where the tradition of the church comes in. What has the church consistently believed over a period of time? And it doesn't, um, it has, doesn't take long. The church has always acted by consensus, not by a simple vote of who's right or who's wrong. And to achieve consensus can sometimes take a deal of time. Americans are very impatient with that sort of idea. But for example, the uh, dogmas of the um, Immaculate Conception and the Assumption of Mary. The first was in 1854 and the second one was 1950. Uh, it took almost 2,000 years for those two dogmas to be sorted out as having been believed uh, by the church from the beginning. And this is where the people in the pew have a role. Um, so it's... The magisterium doesn't dictate it simply um, tries to hang on to what has been there essential, considered essential from the beginning. Now, the parable of the laborers in the vineyard in chapter 20 of Matthew's Gospel is also found only in Matthew. Um, by adding the free-floating saying, the last will be first and the first last, 
Matthew stresses the idea that the late arriving Gentiles gained priority over the Jews who were there in the beginning. This implication becomes clear in the parable of the wicked tenants. Interestingly, he uses nation to refer to the church. In other words, the true nation is no longer Israel, but church. Matthew alone puts the theme of nearness of the kingdom of God into John the Baptist's mouth. Others speak only of his preaching repentance. Only is John aware of Jesus' sonship at the moment of autism. Now, three parables stress the need for watchfulness in the view of the delayed second coming. Parable of the faithful and wise servant, the ten maidens, and the parable of the talents. However, the period of time between the two comings is not insignificant waiting. Before the consummation can occur, the followers of Jesus have an obligation to preach the gospel to all the people of the world and instruct them in his teachings. The passage of time does not permit us to grow lax or indifferent, since the second coming is certain. The only question is when. On the other hand, we should not think of Jesus as absent during this period, since he has promised his continuing presence until the old age has given way to the kingdom of the Father. This brings us to Luke, who not only was the author of the third gospel in order found in the New Testament today, um, he also was the author of the book of Acts. And um, scholars can tell, tell you that because of Luke um, used some, some distinctive language which is found only in him. Um, for example, one of the reasons why we think he may indeed have been a doctor is that he uses some medical terms which no other of the other evangelists ever use or even those who are writing epistles. Um, so that's how we know that he was um, certainly well-educated, um, particularly in the book of Acts, the first chapter. He writes in uh, antique Greek, not the Koine Greek of everyday marketplace in Jesus' time, um, but the, the Greek of Homer. And um, it's called Attic Greek. So he would have had to have been a very educated person to do that. There was an important question which confronted early Christians. Why should there be a church? If the end of the age is the next act in God's redemptive drama, What's the point of an ongoing institution? Now, we ask that same question today, but for far different reasons. Matthew had moved beyond Mark's simple assumption that the end would come after a period of evangelism and depicted the church as the true Israel in contrast to the historic one. But it was Luke who developed an encompassing view of history in which God's overall purpose is made known. He gives a positive significance to the situation before the end, 
rather than looking only to the end itself. For Luke, the establishment of the church was as much a part of the divine plan as the day of judgment itself. Church is an indispensable antecedent to the end of the age, the midpoint of the whole drama, as it were. From internal references, it is clear that Luke had access to accurate information in setting forth his story of the spread of the gospel from Galilee to Jerusalem to Rome. Still, it would be unreasonable to expect him to measure up to modern standards of historical reliability, much less objectivity. His intended readership was the literarily, perhaps even the intellectually, sophisticated people of his day. For example, he adopted first century the custom of inventing speeches or modifying the accounts of events. His aim was not verbatim reporting, but portraying what was characteristic of, of what he thought was significant in the events he was relating. What was the pattern of order which guided Luke in the arrangement of his material? One is that he divides history into three epochs, from ancient Israel to John the Baptist, uh, and for Matthew, John the Baptist marks the beginning of the new era of violence that precedes the end. But for Luke, he marks the end of the epoch of the law and the prophets. Secondly, the earthly ministry of Jesus itself is divided into three phases. The launching of his ministry with the sermon in chapter 4, uh, and then the preaching of the gospel outside of Galilee, in beginning in chapter 9. Now, the rejection of the church by his fellow countrymen is expected from the start, so he must seek a response of faith wherever it may be found. That sending of the 70 to go out and evangelize, um, interesting uh, number, because in Jewish tradition, the human race is divided into 70 nations. So they're being sent to everyone. It anticipates the mission to the Gentiles. That is the same theme of Acts. This phase is triggered not just by rejection, but also by Jesus' own announcement of his impending suffering and death. And finally, Jerusalem. Since it is central to the whole purpose of God, it is there that the church, that Jesus must go. It is from here that the world mission of the church will begin. Um, their, their worldwide mission begins in Jerusalem. Now, from the ascension to the return of the church, uh, to, sorry, to the return of Christ, the second coming. Ascension, this is the third epoch that uh, Luke sets apart. The ascension is reported only in Luke. Therefore, he comes to judge all at the end of the age. Before he comes to judge all at the end of the age. God's work is being carried out by the Spirit, working through the church. God's power is just as much at work in the church as it was in the ministry of Jesus. And Jesus made the, uh, Jesus made the promise um, I will be with you till the end of the ages. Time for another break, so I'll be back shortly. Do 
question the important issues of today. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com As a Catholic or non-Catholic, would you be interested in knowing more about the faith? We have a large selection of books in various categories from apologetics to spirituality. CDs and DVDs are also available, as well as handcrafted rosaries. In short, we are a resource for seekers. If we do not have what you are looking for, give us a call and we will try to find it for you. Visit DefendingTheCatholicFaith.com to find out more or call us at 251-317-3977. That's DefendingTheCatholicFaith.com. The White House doctor makes house calls. Listen every week for House Calls with Dr. Connie Mariano. Dr. Connie has served as the White House physician under three U.S. presidents. Now she joins the Voice America Empowerment Channel to help you enrich yourself physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Our guests will include professionals from a variety of fields who will bring you tips that you can apply to your own life. Listen for House Calls with Dr. Connie every Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's time to transform your life. Start by tuning in to The Glenise Show with Glenise Hughes. Glenise combines business, relationships, wealth, life, and a whole lot of magic to create abundance and prosperity in every part of your life. It's all done through straight and often frank discussions in the best way that Glenise knows how. Listen every Thursday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time and 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Master your life with The Glenise Show. Success starts here. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. It's your world. You are tuned into Religious Faith and the Public Square with Father John Holloman. To reach the program today, please call 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. You may also send an email to defendingcatholicfaith at gmail.com. Now, back to Religious Faith and the Public Square. Hello again. Uh, We're talking about Luke. We wrote both the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts. And we were talking about how he divided um, the earthly ministry of Jesus into three phases. The launching of his ministry with a sermon, the preaching of the gospel outside of Galilee, um, and this, uh, the sending of the 70 um, to do some evangelization, get some practical experience. Um, and finally, the city of Jerusalem, which is central to the whole purpose of God in Luke's eyes. It is there that Jesus has to go. It is from there that the world mission of the church will begin. Now, from the ascension of, to the return of Jesus, the ascension is reported only in Luke's gospel. Before he comes to judge all at the end of the age, God's work is being carried out by the Spirit working through the church. God's power is just as much at work in the, as it was in the ministry of Jesus. Luke sets out to show the continuity between the Old Covenant people and the new thing that God is creating. 
The directness of the continuity between Jesus and Israel's hopes is affirmed in the genealogy of Jesus. Matthew traces Jesus' ancestry back to Abraham. Luke tra traces it all the way back to Adam. Luke wants his readers to know that Jesus is the world's redeemer, not just the deliverer of Israel. Luke's uh, historical purpose, if you put that word historical in quotation marks, God's guiding hand is to be seen through the whole range of history, culminating in Jesus. Still, the nation of Israel has come under judgment because it has failed to understand the will of God through the prophets. Um, an example would be the speech of Stephen in Acts chapter 7, verses 51 to 53. The people's failure does not lie in the law and the prophets but in their inability to hear God's words speaking to them through the scriptures. Yet even their rejection of his word had been turned into good purpose by God. That's, uh, we find that in Acts chapter 2, verse 23. Throughout all three epochs, the effective agent in the accomplishment of God's purpose is the Holy Spirit. In preparation through the prophets, which he mentions in Acts, in commissioning Jesus at his baptism, in his gospel, chapter 3, and in empowering the church at Pentecost, the second chapter of Acts, the story of the miracle of simultaneous translation, also in that chapter 2, makes the point that all people now come under God's spirit, not just the Jews. It is the spirit that makes it possible for the church to perform its work. Even before Jesus begins his public ministry, Luke lets his reader know that the grace of God operates beyond ethnic bounds. Peace is for all the responding in, who respond in faith, rather than the prerogative of a chosen few. God not only accepts these estranged people from him, such as religious outcasts and Gentiles, um, religious outcasts would be the lepers, he actively seeks out those who know their need and acknowledge it. Converse of this concern for outcasts is a constant attack on the rich. Um, an example would be the Magnificat in the first chapter of Luke, especially verses 51 and 52. Now, there are three parables that Luke presents in sequence, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. It stresses, if stress is laid on the joy of the one recovering what was lost, the point of the stories become the nature of God rather than the condition of the one who is lost, prodigal son. Accordingly, the names would become the joyous shepherd, the joyous housewife, and the joyous father, as in the parable, the prodigal son. Luke sees Jesus as the foe of prideful moralism, as the spokesman for God. Um, he gives the question the Pharisee and the publican in the temple. If God's grace can evoke no response of faith in Israel, it will turn to the Gentiles. The shift in mission from Israel to the world is specifically pronounced in Acts. 
chapter 13. Just as Luke began his gospel with the program outlining the ministry of Jesus, he introduces Acts with the program of the risen Christ to be implemented by the Holy Spirit through the church. The disciples are now called apostles, the sent ones. Um, apostle is a Greek word meaning uh, restricted to people who carry messages between one king and another. Kind of an ancient version of the Pony Express. Um, so now that the uh, disciples, uh, the, the special 12 who are called apostles, they are to bear the witness to the gospel first in Jerusalem. And for Luke, that is the primary place of revelation. Then in all Judea, then in Samaria, and finally to the ends of the earth. However, Luke not only sets out the program, but also describes the progress of the gospel toward what is at least a symbolic achievement of its goal, Rome. The first seven chapters of Acts shows the efforts to proclaim the good news in Jerusalem, the success of their efforts, and the violent opposition to it. The persecution following the martyrdom of Stephen forces many of Christians in Rome to flee, taking the message with them. For example, Philip, uh, he meets the Ethiopian eunuch on the road. Um, but this is interesting thing about it is that the people who leave Jerusalem, the Christians were Greek speaking Christians, not native born Hebrews. Um, the apostles, for example, remained in Jerusalem uh, after the stoning of Stephen. Um, and that's where um, one, of the one of the martyrdoms of the apostles occurs. Um, Saul's role in the persecution which launched the Gentile mission is ironic. And Luke uses it to show how the work of God's mission is spirit proceeds not only in the spite of, but by means of human opposition. A Gentile mission begins in full force with the conversion of Cornelius, uh, which uh, is a story involving Peter. And it's important to emphasize by the fact that the story is related by Luke twice in both chapters 10 and 11. The point of the story is to show that the decision to open the church to all without, for, without forcing submission to Jewish law was neither Peter's idea nor Paul's, but God's. Now, it's so-called um, circumcision controversy. The problem was that those who were still um, considered themselves faithful to Jewish law but had become Christian, uh, felt that to become a Christian, you had to be circumcised in accordance with the Mosaic law. And the whole purpose of the Peter's vision of the blanket coming down from heaven filled with all sorts of uh, types of food, including um, swine, which um, 
for Jews or unclean animal. Um, was to show that there's nothing which is forbidden by God. It's all acceptable. And we don't have to um, force people to conform to the so-called Council of Jerusalem was called to resolve the conflict over what to do with Gentile converts. There are two versions given by Luke and Acts and Paul um, gives his own version in Galatians chapters 1 and 2, which on the surface of it seem incompatible. In the book of Acts, there is a public hearing. Titus is not mentioned. There are four apostolic decrees. No idolatry. Abstain from blood. Uh, food with blood, that is. Blood was considered life and provided only by God. Abstain from eating animals killed by strangling. I'm not quite sure where that comes from. And finally, fourthly, abstain from unchastity. Now, in Paul's version, in Galatians, um, he depicts his conversion as a private one. Titus, which is a Greek Gentile name, is present. And uh, there's a division of labor. Paul goes to the Gentiles and to the Jerusalem group to Jews. And the one thing they all agreed on was remember the poor. Now, this um, so-called Council of Jerusalem, we'll pick up at that point when we come back next week. And um, hope you have a lovely spring week ahead of you. Goodbye for now. question the important issues of today and try to find a sort of spiritual connection welcome to religious faith and the public square it's your world motivate change succeed voiceamericaempowerment.com as a catholic or non-catholic would you be interested in knowing more about the faith we have a large selection of books in various categories from apologetics to spirituality. CDs and DVDs are also available, as well as handcrafted rosaries. In short, we are a resource for seekers. If we do not have what you are looking for, give us a call and we will try to find it for you. Visit DefendingTheCatholicFaith.com to find out more or call us at 251-317-3977. That's DefendingTheCatholicFaith.com. Friend us on Facebook to keep up with what's empowering the world. Voice America Empowerment. You are tuned into Religious Faith and the Public Square with Father John Holloman. To reach the program today, please call 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. You may also send an email to defendingcatholicfaith at gmail.com. Now, back to Religious Faith and the Public Square. Good 
Hello again. We are talking about Luke's version of things, both in his gospel and the book of Acts, and comparing his version of what happened at the Council of Jerusalem to resolve the question of do Gentile converts have to be circumcised or not. Um, and Luke wrote much later than Paul, so there might be different concerns. He explains the apparent inconsistencies. For Luke, the council marked an important turning point, a shift in leadership from apostles to elders. Now, the mission to Asia Minor and Europe, none of the many civil authorities before whom Paul and his associates are brought can find anything worthy of punishment. In other words, it is the work of God and not a conflict with the laws of men. This puts Paul's work in the wider setting of overarching redemptive purpose of God. Luke's chief contribution is a theological one. He provided a broad framework for comprehending the meaning of the church in the long-range purpose of God, enabling the Christian community to survive the crisis of disappointment that the end was delayed. Historical detail is not always reliable. Um, for example, Paul's so-called sermons um, are not Pauline in content, a disagreement with Paul's version of the council. This is not a critical problem. The church in Luke's day was struggling with the problem of changing from a free-moving evangelistic enterprise to a settled situation and a settled institution. Acts stresses the oneness of the church and the government gospel that is and ought to be proclaimed everywhere. And this brings us to the fourth gospel, uh, that of John. This is a very different one from the first three. Um, and in fact, I know one case in particular, uh, I knew an Episcopal bishop in this country who had been born and raised in England uh, by Marxist parents. And um, so he was raised to believe that uh, religion was the opiate of the people and that sort of thing. But when he got to college, he decided maybe he'd better read something of what these people have written um, to make his own arguments against them. So he picks the Gospel of John. By the time he got to the end of it, he was no longer an atheist. Um, and he considered that to be the beginning of his conversion uh, to the church and going on to the priesthood of the Church of England and then immigrating to this country and becoming a bishop. The principal feature of John's gospel is the stress on the presence of Christ and eternal life to and for the community of believers. It's the expectation of the second coming is subordinate. Um, they'd gotten over expecting it to be all happening very soon. Um, so there's the presence of Christ and the presence of eternal life to the community of believers. It goes the farthest of the four Gospels in stressing intensity 
of Jewish rejection and the contrast between the old and the new. John had several purposes in writing, but the most important was his desire to give a theological interpretation of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It's not just a repetition of stories found in the prior three synoptic gospels. His aim is to interpret that ministry in light of his faith that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. He is looking for a deeper meaning of the same events described by others. Now, in his prologue, chapter 1, verses 1 to 18, Moses had given the law, but it is only through Jesus that God's grace and truth are revealed. He is going to show how God brought into being a new community through his Son and explain how the Jews' rejection and the Gentiles' acceptance of Jesus' contrast. After the prologue, there are two major divisions. First, Jesus' public ministry, chapters 1 through 12, and second, the final period, chapter 13 to the end of the Gospel, consisting of private conversation between Jesus and the Twelve, the Passion and Resurrection, narratives, and finally the coming of the Holy Spirit. Like the synoptics, it begins with John the Baptist. His role is completely subordinated to Jesus. The Baptist's message is omitted, leaving him to proclaim only that Jesus is the Lamb of God and Son of God. In John's Gospel, knowledge of Jesus' identity is revealed by God through the Spirit only to those who believe. There's another new item in this gospel. Jesus is recognized as the Messiah by the disciples from the beginning. Peter is named Rock, the Latin word for rock is truce. Uh, when he's, it's changed from... Um, John has him being called, named Rock at his call from the very beginning rather than later on. Nathaniel, despite doubt, is willing to come and see. In other words, the essence of faith for John is the openness of mind that leads one, in spite of our doubt, to approach Christ and be known, be shown who he is. Now, John uses this word sign, which can be very misleading. For John, a sign is not just something that stands for something that's not present, like a road sign that says New York 30 miles, pointing to something that's not there. Uh, for him, sign is the actual manifestation of God's power, which brings salvation to those who believe. The death and resurrection of Jesus is the greatest of all signs, through which the meaning of all the others is revealed. Now, there's a second uh, meaning, symbols of a truth that cannot be observed directly. In other words, uh, in the first sign at Cana, the water becomes wine, symbolizing the new life that Jesus brings to us. In the Synoptic Gospels, however, the sign, word signs refer to events that mark the coming of the end, uh, indicators of the coming of the end. 
and the cleansing of the temple follows. By placing it at the opening of Jesus' ministry, rather than the end, Jesus is saying that the Spirit was present in Jesus from the outset. In the remark, destroy this temple in three days I will raise it up, Jesus is saying that with the resurrection, Jesus will replace the Jewish temple as the place where we find God. In some, changing water into wine is to new life, like cleansing of the temple is the spiritual worship of the church brought into being through faith. Now, John likes double meanings. For example, the Greek phrase translated as born anew, born again, can also be translated born from above, where the spirit comes from. Again, lifting up of the Son of Man refers both to the elevation of Christ on the cross, his death, and the elevation of Christ to heaven, his resurrection. Well, we've come to the end of our time for this week, and I hope to see you back here again next week. We pick up where we left off. God bless. Thank you for tuning in to Religious Faith and the Public Square. Please join Father John Holloman again next Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We hope you have a very good week.